0: the podcast for all things myth, lore, and those creepy monsters that go bump in the night. Each week, I'm sitting down with some non-mythers and introducing them to the wonderful world of mythology. We're taking a look at culture, at humanity, and discussing the connection between these ancient stories and the issues we still face in society today. There will be wine and snacks and plenty of laughs along the way, so sit back relax, and join me on my personal quest to corrupt the minds of the world one myth at a time. everybody we finally got to episode eight this episode we are going to talk about elves and the environment and with me I have again I have Elwyn and Loralee you guys want to say hi hi everyone <laughs> okay and um I'm gonna kind of just jump right in because we have a lot to go over um elves they have been around for a very long time and they're Symbology and the concept of elves is kind of ingrained in Western culture. Um, they've, they've captivated the minds of Western culture since ancient times. Uh, William Shakespeare's Midsummer Nights is a example. Uh, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, um, and several other of his writings. Yeah. He portrays um, elves a lot. Um, the famous, uh, card game Dungeons and Dragons has different types of elves Um, and then of course the most modern and um, commonly well-known form of an elf would be Santa's little helpers. They're elves and it's really interesting to me that elves are associated with Santa because Santa Claus is kind of like a half Norse god, half Germanic lore, (laughs) like right all the way down to the reindeer themselves. Those are all um, very closely related or images that are related to Norse mythology. And of course the Norsemen are the Vikings. And Vikings, they didn't always distinguish the elves from their gods. So in Norse mythology, there's two sets of gods. We're gonna call them tribes of gods. And the first tribe is the Aesir. And the Aesir gods are uh, the warrior-like gods. So gods like Odin and Thor. Those would be perfect examples of the Aesir. The other form of gods and goddesses are the veneer. And the veneer are they're not, they're not usually depicted as uh, really muscular, bulky, they're slender in form they kind of uh inhabit the norse values of fair skin fair hair fair eyes um they're beautiful and they're also magical um it's the veneer that we get the whole like nature magic and even like psychic abilities i'm gonna go into that a little bit more later but the vikings they they referred to elves as uh more radiant and beautiful than the sun And going back to the two different tribes of gods and goddesses in the Norse Pantheon. Okay, we've got um, the god Frey, and he was actually the lord of elves. He ruled over their homeland, or the homeland of the light elves. There were different distinctions. Um, And his homeland that he ruled over was called Alfheim. And he, Frey was actually like a really beloved god by... The vikings he was the god of prosperity abundance and fertility and his name literally translates to lord his sister freya is a more commonly known goddess um, her name translates to lady and these were the two veneer gods that um after the great war in the Norse pantheon um, there was an, a war between the asir and the Veneer gods and goddesses And after the war was over, okay, there was this practice where um, in old Germanic tribes where after a war was finished between two two different tribes they would do an exchange and these were, this was a diplomatic exchange where the losing tribe would send their two most talented and beloved uh, members to live with the tribe that won and they did this to ensure peace amongst both parties because the 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 members that moved were protected by this really deep code of honor any harm or anything like that that would come to them would be this um huge deal they were very very concerned with that sort of like keeping that honor it was it was uh ingrained in their culture so after the war Frey and Freya are the veneer gods and goddesses that go and live with the Aesir and they become honorary members of the Aesir tribe. So it's interesting because um, when this happens, Freya ends up teaching the Aesir gods and goddesses um, their magic. And their magic was magic of nature, and it was also magic of prophecy. So Odin, who eventually um, becomes a like sort of omnipotent, he becomes the all-knowing um, father god, and it's he becomes this through the magic that Freya actually teaches, and it's said that magic comes from Freya, who learned it from the elves, and that magic is then trickled down to humans
1: in the nordic legend aren't there also dark elves yeah there are
0: i'm i'm going to get to them <laughs> okay, sorry uh, no 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 you're fine you're fine so actually that's literally my very next note there are two types of elves in Norse mythology there's the and i'm going to try and pronounce this uh low which were the light elves these are the elves that come from Alphaheim and these are the ones that Frey is the ruler of and then there's the dakalfar now i'm going to go i'm going to talk about this like the differences a lot because there's a lot of different information the dakalfar are the dark elves and these elves come from niflheim which is a realm of darkness cold and mist and these elves were said to dwell in the earth and there's um, one quote from uh, Snorri Sturluson's Poetic Edda, which is where we get most of our information about Norse mythology, where he says they were, quote, blacker than pitch. And this was a book that was written in the 13th century, but it's also important to note that Snorri was a Christian monk. So while he was out there gathering all these um, folk tales and, and lore concerning the Norse people, his writings were also uh, kind of written through the Christian lens. So I just feel like it's important to stop and say that because a lot of the times in these stories, dark elves are depicted as evil and light elves are depicted as good. In reality, in the Norse practice or in Norse paganism, elves are pretty ambiguous, like they don't, they're not really either bad or good. Sometimes they're good depending on the circumstances and they can heal humans. They can also cause a lot of sickness, but it really isn't until after Christianity becomes like this widespread thing that elves are seen as um, tricksters and mischievous. Before that, they were just a different sort of realm of peoples and they didn't really like humanity. They didn't really hate humanity. They just didn't concern themselves with humans because, um, they had their own little realms to live in. Also dark elves are associated a lot of the time with, uh, dwarves from Norse mythology. They kind of had similar jobs uh, In Norse mythology dwarves lived underground. They, uh, they ruled over smithing and um, created like these amazing magical weapons. Um, they they were nature deities, just like the light light elves. But um, they're sometimes used like even interchangeably the the dwarves and the dark elves. So that's really interesting. Did you find anything
1: different in your research, Elwin? I did discover while I was researching. That's uh, the dark elves were considered a metaphor for the Romans. Yeah, I I have that note in here. Yeah, they they were ugly and they had none of the fair traits <sighs> like the blonde hair, the fine nose, the close link with nature. Right, and
0: and it's really important to also like build upon that. So Romans that the North saw the Romans as these like they weren't just ugly humans they saw them as ugly inherently because they were so industrial and so far removed from nature itself the the norsemen they valued nature a lot and to not honor nature as a part of life itself was a big deal to them so and there goes the (laughs) doctor that's really interesting so Originally, elves were fertility and nature deities, and over time they kind of retained these uh, powers and longevity of the sort of gods and goddesses, well, we'll call them spirits, that they sort of came from. They're separate from fairy folk and definitely different from the Aesir. even though later on the fairy folk and elves kind of are used interchangeably in some cultures. Um, the Afar are elves and they're, uh, they were well known in the folklore traditions of Scandinavia. They're referred to as hudra folk in Norway and their music is called hudra slat. Um, And what's really interesting is uh, there was an ingrained Elfish tradition in the worship of Elves in Northern Paganism. And this tradition was nearly impossible for Christianity to replace whenever it came in. One reason for this is that Norsemen linked um, Elves to their ancestors. In some aspects, when you die, you could become an Elf. In other aspects, they, the ancestor would be reborn and have elfish traits and elfish abilities, or maybe even a name that was linked to some sort of elf power or something resembling elf. And uh, these people would become heroes and legends. And so this was like really ingrained in their culture. In some stories, elves have this like love of moonlight and meadows and dancing. There were good elves that led an ethereal existence and then the dark elves were said to leave a subterranean life. And these eventually come to be known as malevolent to mankind. But in between these two sects, there were also what's called the hog folk or the hill people. These elves inhabited caves and mounds, and um, as I said earlier, dwarves in Norse mythology were also subterranean creatures, and this is one reason why dark elves were associated with them. Um, Jacob Grimm uh, from the Brothers Grimm's Fairy Tales, he actually goes on to like disagree with Snorri's two distinction of elves. He breaks them down into three different races. Lucifer, Dokofar, and Spartofar. His whole thing was that dark elves weren't black elves. They were just sort of dingy and paler than the white, good-spirited elves. And it's thought that Grimm's uh, sort of like concept from this comes from a Pomeranian legend, which is found in the tale of Solomon and Markov, where white, pale, and black troops of spirits would come and claim souls. As I said before, dark elves are interchangeably known as dwarves, um, black Elves, which is different from Dark Elves, eventually become known as they Sparklefar, And they're kind of like the... Uh, dark Elves are the counterpart to the Highland Fairies of Scotland, known as the Sealy Court, while the Light Elves were the equivalent of the Unsealy Court. Okay, so uh, one interesting fact is that uh, Dark Elves in one story, or well, a few different stories, they had this um, hatred for the sun and light and this sort of leads into the belief that dark elves were the ones that caused nightmares and haunted horses and threatened people. Elves tended to take things like respect and honor very seriously which is kind of uh, a reflection of uh, the Germanic tribes that their lore originates from and ignorant humans could easily cause offense and therefore be struck with illness. As I said before, the Norse worshipped elves. They made sacrifices to them for healing. And there's also stories of humans and elves interbreeding. And this result was usually a human-looking child with nearly supernatural beauty. And these half-human, half-elves also tended to possess extraordinary abilities and become heroes of legend. One of the powers that these half-human, half-elves people tended to have was, uh, psychic abilities and, um, other, like, talents more closely related to nature. The belief that humans could transform into elves after death is also, uh, closely linked to their sort of, like, um, ancestry worship,
1: and isn't there's... It believed in, oh, sorry. It, isn't ahead. it believed in, um, don't some people, some, uh, lore, don't they think that Merlin was part elf?
0: Yes, actually, I'm going to get to that. That's a really interesting story because it's like um, Marlin is said to have elf blood, and King Arthur is said to have fairy blood, which is kind of right, like yeah. the first intersection that we see of the two, or the first written intersection, I guess. So um, there's an example of the whole like elf and ancestry thing, and it comes from the Saga of Olaf the Holy which was one of the first Christian kings of Norway. Basically, Olaf and a servant ride past the burial mound of the king's ancestor and namesake, who is now called by the name Olaf. I'm never gonna get this last name right, so we're just gonna call him -er, Olafur, (laughs) because we're just gonna do that. So um, that name literally translated to Olaf, the elf of Gearstead this title clearly implies that the currently elfin state of the king's forefather um, was related to the elven kind the same passage also insinuates the king Olaf is the reincarnation of the deceased Olaf showing that the dead could be thought to have multiple fates simultaneously and there's not really a contradiction on this point since the scenario would be logically possible in the Norse view of having multiple spiritual parts. So that was one of the things that the Norse believed was that their their soul had different spiritual aspects. So one could be reborn as a human while the other could be uh, reborn as an elf. So when Christianity comes and does the whole formal conversion, medieval law codes start prohibiting i mean even after christianity came through and took away all of the pagan belief systems this worship of elves was still there they still had um a worship of ancestors and practices that they would do when someone was sick um giving offerings to elves so medieval law comes in and starts trying to make these things illegal and this really demonstrates just how hard it was for uh, Christianity to eradicate this belief system. And as I said earlier, when Christianity comes, the elves become mischief maker and makers in kinder tales and downright evil forces and others. The lore of the elf is really embedded in Germanic and Scandinavian culture, even today. Um, the, the word, the German word for nightmare is out, which <laughs> translates to elf pressure." And this comes from the common belief that elves would sit upon the chest of humans who had offended them at night and torture them with bad dreams, which I just find really interesting. There's some legends that claim that the look of elves was linked to the changes of seasons in nature. Uh, The Norse elf was mostly immortal, but they could die if their sacred oak tree was cut. Um, And this is another really important distinction between fairies and elves. So, elves and fairies are both nature spirits but elves are closely linked to trees which the norsemen found sacred <clears throat> while fairies are more closely associated with things like flowers and butterflies and even certain insects so elves were associated
1: with the trees and the protection of those trees Didn't uh, the Scandinavians or the the some of the dramatic beliefs uh you know when you were talking about how mm-hmm. some of the elves were bad. Didn't they think that, like, they would tangle your hair while you were asleep? Yeah, an elf knot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then, if like, be- turn milk sour. Like, if like if you weren't nice to them, you would get bad yeah. luck. If you were good to them, you would get good luck, so.
0: Yep, it, and it wasn't always, um, it wasn't always if you were bad to them. Sometimes it was if you were bad to nature. If you disturbed something that they had a fondness for, be it a specific tree or, a certain part of the forest. You were apt to get uh, these sort of like things happen, like the elf knots. And I find that really hilarious because I get knots in my hair all the time from having like thick curly hair. So I'm like, mm. as I was like learning that, I was like, I wonder how much i have upset out <laughs> to have the many <laughs> knots in my hair. <laughs> Um, as I said earlier, elves didn't always, they didn't really hold the human race in high esteem. Humans weren't really respectful of nature all the time, so they didn't really like them all the time. And light elves were the perfect portrait, or were a portrait of the perfect Norsemen. Blonde hair, blue or green eyes, fine noses and features, and the close link to the respect of nature. Those were all traits that ancient Norse people, um, highly valued. And as Elwyn mentioned earlier, <clears throat> Romans may have, or dark elves may have represented Romans, which was a group that the Norse people despised. Um, interestingly enough, the pointy ears of elves are said to be there because they were said to have uh, really acute and acute human hearing. And um, we touched on this earlier, but Arthurian lore is very closely linked to elves. King Arthur was said to have fairy blood or be the son of a fairy. And uh, Merlin was said to be of elven descent. Um, There's one tale where Merlin nearly falls into the trap of a beautiful elven maiden. She kind of like lures him into the woods to kill him. And he's immediately struck by her beauty and kind of like comes under her enchantment. And it's it's sort of... huh? Him away. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what did you say her name was? Him away. Him away. Yes. It's really luck that gets him out of the situation. I mean, he he does like, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he has this moment where he's like, wait, hold on. And then that distraction allows
1: him to to kind of like leave. Am I wrong? Elwin? No, I, 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 I'm i pretty sure you're right. Um, i when I was younger, I Read all kinds of uh, books on King Arthur, and I did some research, but it's been so long since uh, since I, I I read a lot of that stuff that I forget some of the details, exact details but I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what happens.
0: So, in Iceland, um, this, I, first of all, I love Iceland for this. Iceland still has a very strong belief for fairies and elves. It's
1: very much alive. Um, about how of the residents... They call them the the. I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly. The, haldu folk, Hul-du folk, which means
0: okay. hidden. Yep. Which means hidden people. Yep. You're right. It's said that about half of the residents uh, of Iceland believe in them, and the other half just don't rule them out. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm going to tell you a little bit. Um, about why that is, but okay, so there's an author, um, D.L. Ashleman, he wrote a book called *Culkin Fairy Tales, a Handbook, and he explains these hidden people, as um, they call them, as descendants of Eve. So his explanation is that Eve was embarrassed that her children were dirty when God comes to visit her, so he lies about their existence, so she lies about their existence and hides them away. God knew about them, of course, and cursed her deceitfulness by stating, what man hides from God, God will hide from man. These children of Eve become the hidden folk of Iceland, and they make their homes in large rocks and hills, and are mostly invisible to humans. This supernatural belief of the hidden people is so strong in Iceland that many road construction projects and other construction projects have been delayed or even rerouted entirely to avoid disturbing else homes. Residents will actually thwart, thwart these large construction projects just to protect the Elves. There's a really good example of this. I love this story. This comes from the late 1930s. They basically were going to construct this road near Offhole, which translates roughly to Elf Hill. And this is the most famous Elf residence in the city of Copa Volker. The construction was going to bring this road straight through the Elf Hill and that would have destroyed the elves home. Interestingly enough, first what happens is the construction company that was doing this, they lose all of their funding. And so they're kind of like struggling. It takes them a whole decade, an entire decade to come up with the money to do this road again. And once they do come up with the money and start the project again, all sort of issues happen. They Their machinery starts breaking, tools vanish literally out of nowhere. And this happens so much and causes such an issue that the road ends up being rerouted around the hill. And once they made the decision to reroute the road, everything goes smoothly. Um, the same road in 1980s was going to be raised and paved and Again, they were going to go through off the What happens then is their big, big machinery, their rock, their rock drill breaks into pieces, like literally breaks into pieces, okay? Um, nobody knows how it happens. Nobody can explain it. There wasn't a way that um, local, locals could have come in and destroyed it, it just happens. So they order another drill. This drill breaks as well. And then tools start going missing. And a lot of other crazy, uh, seemingly unrelated, but interesting things happen that thwart the construction. And this ends up spooking the workers. And the construction workers get so spooked that they refuse to go anywhere near the hill. Interestingly, Alphal is now protected as a cultural heritage. They did end up abandoning that project. They never went through the hill. And in Iceland in 2012, laws were made stating that all places reputed for magic or connected to folktales, customs, or natural beliefs are protected for cultural heritage. That's really nice. Isn't that? Isn't that it's wonderful.
2: Awesome?
0: <laughs> it's really awesome. So um, I want to take a minute and I'm going to try and speed through this part. But I have this part in here because I find it interesting, but it's uh, the etymology of the word elf itself. So, alp is the Middle High German word for specter or spirit or ghostly being. Um, And this word comes to be known as the deception and cheating of victims. Um, Alp in Old High German is either alpi or alpi in plural. And modern German provides the masculine elf and the feminine "elfie." And this term comes from the English word elfin, which was introduced in the mid-1700s. The terms elvin, elvish, elfish, and elfin come from this word. Elvish actually means in old German paganism, elves of human size, where elfish and elfin relate to the Renaissance and Romantic folklore for the tiny elves which I just find interesting because there's a big difference between the Norse version of the elves and then like the later kind of Anglo-Saxon version. Norse elves were human size or slightly taller, whereas elves kind of eventually become similar to fairies in that they're little people. Another part of this is there's a lot of elf elements in Anglo-Saxon names. Um, Alfric, is a common German name which means elf ruler. The French version of this word is auberon or aubery. And Anglo Saxons differentiated between light and dark elves as well. And many believed in different types of fairies who lived in subterranean caverns, mines, and beneath hollow hills. Folklore did not describe the non-human elf folk as particularly benevolent. In Anglo Saxon beliefs, um, they had a duality. Sometimes their p- personalities were contradictory. Sometimes they could be helpful, other times they were harmful. Um, In Beowulf, there's a reference to misshapen creatures who were condemned alongside Germanic giants and hell devils. And this is an instance where Christianity has like adopted these pagan creatures and classified them as demons and descendants of Cain who were drove away from mankind. There's literally, I think, one reference of elves in Beowulf, and it's where he's describing uh, oh, Grindel. It's, it's Grindel, right? The monster Grindel. He's describing yes. sort of like monsters like Grindel, and that's when he mentions elves. In Anglo-Saxon, there's a lot of different elfin types. Uh, Old English, the female elf or alfin, and this term actually becomes interchangeable for nymph. Um, Greco-Romans adopt the concept of an elf in the word landalf. And these become sort of like the country muses. Uh, another term was dunelfin or elf hill. And these were field elves, mountain elves, water elves, and wild elves, which were also known as wild elves, who lived in trees. Alp and elf are both references to mountains and mountain demons. Um, in old English. Names for classical nymphs like uh, dun, meaning hill, and muntes, meaning mountains, become castalides and creedes. Castalides were muses, which were associated with the spring from Greek mythology, and creeds were mountain nymphs. Even the word for dryad comes from the word wudu, which means wood nymph, and all of that comes from the word elf.
1: (laughs) My my pen name in one, when I was Elwyn. Um, mm-hmm. when I was researching, it actually means in one meaning that I found a friend of the elves. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, that's why I, well, I love elves so much that I had to have a you had to have an elfish, elf name <laughs> an, an elvish pen name.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. <clears throat> so in medieval times, um, <clears throat> medical craft was called leech craft. And leechcraft was used as remedies against elfine, which was what they referred to the race of elves. Elf disease, and there was actually a word for it um, called elfsoctha, was a condition that resembled jaundice, where a person would turn yellow instead of red. And they would use leeches to combat this. Also, a lot of Anglo Saxon medicine was occupied with the nightmare, which they believed was cursed by. Are caused by elves. They eventually equate this condition and the elf with the incubus and incubi demons and another interesting aside here is goblins and demons are associated with the words pox and pox, like X and C-K-S, and those are common in many languages and include waterpox or washapuchin, which water efferaldi is a disease that connects um, Disease itself with the water elf, which um, causes hard nails, hard hands, watery eyes, and hardness in the side, which they called that, you know, like when you get a stitch in the side, they called that an elf cake. Another really interesting fact was there was a 10th-century metrical charm uh, against a sudden stitch, which offered a remedy to sudden pain, which was most likely rheumatism. But it was thought that the sudden onset of pain was caused by projectiles of elves, or sometimes witches, and these these um, onset of pains were called elf shots or witch shots. Um, and so, they <clears throat> they actually had uh, charms against these like specific ailments that were believed to be caused by elves themselves. Oaf, the word oaf is a variant of the word elf, and it originally referred to a changeling or someone who had been stupefied by elfish enchantment, which I just find interesting because like, you know, an oaf is someone who's not, not got all their crayons in the right box. Yeah. The big oaf. Yeah. Um, In Northern England and Scotland, the word elf shot shows up in a manuscript of about, it's like around the last uh, quarter of the 16th century. And once again, it's referred to as sharp pain caused by the elves. And later, what's really interesting, it's realized that this term was associated with the discovery of Neolithic flint arrowheads. So during this time, people would find these flint arrowheads and they would attribute them to elfish folk. And the artifacts, they would then use these artifacts in healing rituals and also it was said that witches would gather them to injure people and cattle as well. They were actual magical artifacts at the time. And really they were just Neolithic flint heroes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, absolutely. Like dragons and dinosaur bones. The condition of sudden paralysis was also attributed to the elf. Um, It was called an elf stroke. And in 1750, there is an ode by William Collins, which says, there ever heard by sad experience knows how winged the fate the elf shot arrows fly. When the sick ew, her summer food forgoes or stretched on earth the heart smit heifers lie. So this poem or little ode is actually referring to the elf shot the belief that it wasn't just experienced by humans. It was also experienced by cows and um, other livestock. So elves didn't only come after humans, they also came after your livestock if you upset them. So in Denmark and Sweden, elves appear as beings distinct from the vetter. They're insect-winged fairies in British folklore. And they're often called alvor in modern Swedish or alfur in Danish. Uh, The Danish author Hans Christian Andersen writes a fairy tale involving an elf um, called The Elf of the Rose. And this elf was so tiny that he can have a blossom for a home and has wings that reached from his shoulders to his feet. Andersen also wrote about another elf, an Elvir, in The Elfin Hill. These elves are more like traditional Danish folk elves. They're beautiful women living in the hills and boulders, capable of dancing a man to death like the holdra in sweden and norway these elves are hollow when seen from behind which i just find fascinating so basically you see them up front they're beautiful women but if you look at them from behind they're just hollow specters that Um, would be kind of creepy yes (laughs) really creepy so there's another little bit about the elf cross so elf crosses were magical charms that protected people against elves these charms came in, came in two specific shapes. The first was actually a pentagram and this was used as far into the 20th century, like really far into the 20th century to protect um, against evil and negative forces. Pentagrams were inscribed on objects, uh, modern kitchen utilities, carved into doors, painted on households, and they were used, it was used for protection specifically against elves originally, but that later translated into like negative and evil things. The second shape that this elf cross came in was um, an ordinary cross carved into a round or oblong plate. Now this thing took a lot to make, okay, because it was um, it was usually worn as a necklace, but in order for it to have the magic needed to protect the wearer, it had to be forged over three nights with silver from nine different sources of inherited silver. And in some cases, it also needed to be on a church altar for three Sundays after uh, being forged.
1: That would never be done today. We have uh, I know. <laughs> I need it right now, this minute. Let me press the button syndrome. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: I'll be over here with my pentagram.
0: Yeah, right? Like, let me just have my pentagram. Like, it's just a star. I can just draw it. <laughs> so. In Sweden, we have these Swedish alvor, and these were stunningly beautiful girls who lived in the forest with an elven king. They were not immortal, but very long-lived and always young. They were very playful in nature, and they were typically depicted as fair-haired, white-clad, and super nasty when offended in most tales they played the role of disease causing spirits uh one of their favorite things is if you kind of sort of pissed them off but not too bad is they would leave you with a rash um irritating rash and these were called um avoblasts or elven blows you could actually appease elves if you'd piss them off uh, one <laughs> One way to do this, uh, especially in, specifically in Scandinavia, was to leave them butter. Apparently, they like sweet stuff. And they would place the butter in an elven mill or an alfkar alfvarner. There's other ways to appease them uh, that usually involved more than just an apology. Uh, sweets, butter, um, I think in some cases, milk and things like that were left.
1: Wasn't porridge also something that you you could leave on the doorstep at night?
0: Yep, you could leave porridge on the doorstep at night. You could leave uh, milk on the windowsill was another one, um, which also later kind of gets translated into uh, brownies. You would leave sweet milk for brownies, which are, they're basically fairies. (laughs) There's a a famous painting by Nils Blomer called Meadow Elves or um, Anselvar. And there's another one by August Malmström, which is called Avalek or Elf Play. And <clears throat> these both kind of depict the famous uh, belief that elves loved dancing. They There was this belief that they that, that their dancing left behind a circle of some sort. We know today that the circles that we found in the woods that kind of look like this are caused by a fungus or a bacteria. But in those times, elves caused these. And these elf dances were considered magical places. And finally enough, if you dared to violate this, these circles, specifically if a man decided to urinate in one of these circles, it caused him to have venereal diseases. Wow. That's That's like
2: (laughs) good good karma.
0: Very good karma. Good payback. (laughs) Yeah. So Typically, elf circles come to be known as fairy rings with small mushrooms, um, and there's another, and I can't remember where, I don't remember where this came from, but there's this, re- this, um, this passage from a book, and it says uh, that basically elf circles were round places where the grass had been flattened like a floor, and it was because elves had danced there, and it could be really dangerous if you went near one because you could become ill if you decided to go and walk over it or if you went and destroyed anything near or around it. So <clears throat> elves become like super uh, protective of their their spaces, including their trees, including their little their circles and their, their sort of like dancing parties. <clears throat> it was believed that if a human dared to watch the dance of the elves, that he would discover that even though only a few hours seem to have passed many years would pass in the real world um and this is sort of like a remote parallel to the irish seed or fairies where if you get caught in a fairy ring or you get caught in the fairy world time passes much much faster than it does in the human realm
2: yep. my mom would tell me about fairy rings and if we found one she'd tell me, dare me to go step in it just to see what I do. Did you? <laughs> I did a couple of times, but that was like bad days where I was like, "Okay, take me now. I'm done."
0: <laughs> did anything this happen can't to get any
2: worse. No, I was so looking forward to it sometimes, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like yes.
0: <laughs> um, <clears throat> my great grandmother used to talk about uh, elves and fairy rings. Now. Her husband was um, Irish, from Ireland Irish. So she would tell us stories of um, fairy rings and uh, basically what to look out for, what not to look out for. And her warning was always, um, don't sing the fairy songs and don't, don't go near the fairy rings. So basically, if you go out in the middle of the woods and you hear singing, go the other way. You don't need to know what lies there. <laughs> so, <clears throat> um, speaking of songs, there's actually a song from the late Middle, middle Ages, and this is about an Olaf Oliukrens, and basically in the song, the elven queen invites him to dance, and knowing what awaits him if he dances, he refuses. <clears throat> and. Um, says I'm sorry I'm on my way home to my own wedding I can't dance with you the Queen gets offended first she offers him gifts to try and persuade him he declines and um, she gets offended Bended threatens to kill him if he doesn't join but he leaves anyways and he dies of a disease before he reaches home and his young bride dies of a broken heart that seems to be a theme in some of these fairy tales mm-hmm yeah so elves weren't actually always young and beautiful. There's one Swedish folk tale called The Little Rosa and Longlita, where an elvish woman kind of shows up at the end of the story and saves the heroine Little Rose. The condition is that the king's cattle no longer graze on her hill where she lives. This woman is described as attractive, but she doesn't have that ethereal, otherworldly beauty but she does have features that lead the people to believe that she is elven. I'm guessing those features are pointed ears, but. There's a lot of tales of elven females, but there's one about an elven king um, in Denmark and Sweden. It actually comes from a German middle age epic. Uh, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce the name of it, but I'll try. Nibeluganide. In this tale, a dwarf named Alberich plays an important role. Uh, and Alberish literally translates to elf sovereign and Alberon is the same name in French which translates in English as Oberon which is also the king of the fairies in Shakespeare's Midsummer Nights. There's another land legend that of Der Erklung which comes from Denmark and even though it's a legend it's kind of newer than most of these other tales Erklon's nature is a bit of a debate. The name translates literally from German as Alderking. In English, a common translation is Elfking. But in German, this would be Elfenkonig instead of um, Erklonik. So the suggestion is that Erklonic is a mistranslation from the original Danish word like "ellerkonge" or "elverkonge," which actually does mean Elfking, but either way, German and Danish folklore, Erklanging, appears as an omen of death to people, kind of like a banshee. Um, But unlike the banshee, when he appears, he can give the he only appears to the person who's going to die. And his appearance will give you a hint as to what you're going to face. If he appears, um, his expression and his form, if he appears peaceful, Um, and sort of like well put together, then you're going to die a peaceful, painless death. If he appears sort of like really scary looking and with a pain or terror-stricken face, then your death is probably not gonna be that great. This aspect of him is actually immortalized in a very famous poem by Goethe um, called Der Econique, which is later set to music by Schubert, and that becomes a really famous piece of um, Folklore. So I spoke a little bit about Jacob Grimm earlier, but let me go back to the Brothers Grimm. They're, the fairy tale um, Die Witcheliner Lit- is uh, the Shoemaker, the story of the elves and the Shoemaker. And in the Grimm Brothers Grimm version, the title protagonists are two naked mannequins, and they help the Shoemaker with his when he rewards their work with little clothes, they are so happy that they run away and are never seen again. Even though the Vigil Manor are akin to beings like kobolds and dwarves and brownies, the tale has been translated into English as the elves and the shoemaker. This type of elf is also like echoed in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series as the house elves. Um, there's other variations of elves in folklore, which include the Moss People and the Weissfrawen. Moss People were wood folk and basically spirits of the forest. Weissfrawen were beautiful elven women who were enchanted creatures that appeared at noon, sitting in the sunshine, washing their hair, or bathing in a brook. Sometimes they guarded treasure or also haunted castles. There's a very famous Victorian illustrator named Richard Doyle where he sort of like draws the traditional view of an elf uh, from English folklore in his poor little birdie teased picture. This is like a diminutive woodland humanoid and this uh, elf makes a ton of appearances in ballads of English and Scottish origin as well as folk tales. many of which involve trips to Elfheim or Elfland, which is derived from Aflheim, from Norse mythology. Um, and this realm is a mystical realm um, that is said to be beautiful, but unpleasant and eerie. So I don't know how it can be beautiful and unpleasant and eerie, but maybe too beautiful. Can it be like utopia? <laughs> like to the creepy uh, factor? I don't know. In some tales, elves are portrayed in positive lights. Uh, there's the Queen of Elfhame, which is a ballad by Thomas Rhymer. sorry, which is the ballad. There's the Queen of Elfhame in the ballad Thomas the Rhymer. Um, but elves often have very sinister character traits. Uh, male elves specifically seem to get the raw end of the stick. They are usually associated with rape and murder in tales. Um, There's uh, the Tale of uh, Chilled Roland, or the Ballad of Lady Isabel and the Elf Knight. And in that ballad, um, the Elf Knight basically steals Isabel away, kind of molests her, he's going to murder her. Most instances, interestingly enough, of elves, when they appear in ballads, they're usually male. Um, The only commonly encountered female elf in a ballad is the Queen of Elfland. Um, And this same queen is also found in the tale, uh, the queen of Elflands Norris, where a woman is abducted to be a wet nurse to be the queen's baby. And actually, let me go into this a little bit. So there's this really interesting thing with elves. It's just fascinating to me. So basically, elves apparently needed human help to have children. They needed either a midwife to help them deliver the child or they needed a wet nurse to nurse the baby. So in some tales, if you were a wet nurse, you were stolen and kidnapped away from your newborn child because wet nurses were women that had just given birth and they were taken to the elf realm where they didn't have any like forewarning or anything like that. They were just taken. And then once in the elf realm, if you sort of like ate their food or if you received their hospitality, you would be stuck in the world forever. So wet nurses were very, uh, or women that had just had children were often very, very scared of being stolen away from their children. On the flip side of that, and this is interesting, midwives weren't ever stolen. They were approached and asked to help, and in most cases paid for their work and midwives because they had that sort of um warning they knew to pack snacks <laughs> and food and you know sort of like not to accept the kindness of an elf so it's just interesting that it's like um if you were a midwife maybe it's because like midwives determined whether or not the elf child lived whereas wet nurses
2: could be sort of a dime a dozen. Maybe it's because midwives were skilled. I don't know. It could also be midwives were commonly associated with witches or healer women. Mm. They usually had some occultish standing in a community where like if it wasn't a Christian community and you didn't have a priest, the midwife knew everything. You have a cold, you had an infection, you went to the midwife slash healer woman. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: true. And the other crazy thing, and this is just interesting in um some of these tales most of these tales where it involves midwives they were actually the wives of priests which i don't know why that had such an impact on me when i read it but i was like that's i guess it's because of what you said that i'm used to reading about midwives being shaman and witchy and you know not usually christian (laughs) or You know, they they were herbalists and and delved into things that, you know, most uh, Christian communities sort of, like, considered on the fence, you know? But I just thought that was really interesting. English folktales of the early modern period portrayed elves as small, elusive people with mischievous personalities. And... In these tales, they're often portrayed as children with Williams syndrome. Have either of you heard of Williams syndrome? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I had never heard of Williams syndrome before, but apparently Williams syndrome is this rare neurological disease, and it's characterized by um, some medical issues and learning disabilities, and physical traits that literally say, like you can look it up today and Google it and it'll say elven features. So basically what it is, is these, um, I believe they have, and I might be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they have 72 chromosomes. And they have uh, a broad forehead, full cheeks, uh, a short nose and um, full lips. And they, they have these distinctive facial features that are considered um, elven in appearance. And the fascinating thing about this is that what though they might have learning disabilities, they, it's often like they have exceptional social and emotionally intellectual abilities. Like that part of their brain is almost overdeveloped. And so um, they tend to be very extroverted, talkative, um, very socially adept people um, and super charming and I just find this fascinating because in all of the tales of fairies and elves and all of that um, one of the main traits of an elf or a fairy is that they're very social creatures very very skilled in the art of uh, discussion Um, in some cases so much so that if you didn't watch yourself when talking to an elf then you could find yourself in in a contract with them without even really knowing it so um the belief is that maybe some tales come from people with these sorts of syndromes, where they saw these people and they were sort of like charmed by their incredible social social abilities and and um, these people um are often associated or said to have musical ability as well as that part of their brain is also highly developed so that's just very fascinating to me i just find it fascinating because that could like really explain where some of these tales come from you know yeah um and even if you like google williams syndrome and you you see the pictures they're they're very you know they've got those like sort of what what
2: you would call like pixie-ish features you know yeah like that apple cheeks and Mm -hmm. the wide mouth Mm
0: -hmm. yeah so i just find it really fascinating so elves were said to be invisible to human eyes in most cases um in this sense they were very similar to the concept of fairies um the word elf also eventually evolves into the word fairy or they become interchangeable um, and they start to denote various uh nature spirits like pucks, hobgoblins, brownies, hobs, and so forth. And these terms aren't really, uh, they're very interchangeable in a lot of popular folklore. So uh, the the really fascinating thing for me is elves, I mean, it's very obvious that they're uh, protectors of nature, and specifically the environment. And I love the story about Iceland and its protecting the Elfin Hill. I think that I think this is twofold. I think in one aspect they're protectors of the environment but I also think that that's sort of like sort of interchangeable with like the protection of these like beliefs and the reason why I say that is because originally most spirits were nature spirits. We we as a people Meaning everyone, meaning all across all nations. We were very closely tied to nature, nature spirits, nature deities. I mean, take it, it doesn't matter what pantheon culture you you come up with, if you go far enough back, you're going to find the worship of nature itself. So the concept of, of of elves causing illness because you slighted them or or messed with their territory, which was a um, a specific tree or a specific plant or a specific part of the forest, that makes a lot of sense to me coming from just a um, cultural standpoint. Because uh, you know, it's 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 sort of like a slap in the face to nature that you're doing, and what happens when we disrespect nature
1: well what's happening now global warming yes exactly Erratic weather patterns and pandemics and <laughs> exactly
0: so um do either of you have any thoughts on like what sort of specific symbolism the, the elves have that relate to the the environment or the protection of the environment i should say
2: One thing that kind of stuck out to me when I was doing a little bit of research on this was when you see instances of elves and the fae, a lot of times they show up in areas where druidism was at one point either aligning with the local religion and deities or had spread to and then left the area. And they were really big on worshiping trees and Mm -hmm. the powers of nature, drawing a lot of insight from how environment worked around them. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely see elves as being this embodiment of a specific tree or a specific plant Mm -hmm. and therefore imbibing or giving humans an idea of what this being represented on a larger scale.
0: Yes and to go along with that the um, sort of healing aspect of the elves nature makes a lot of sense because uh, medicines come from nature itself so like the druids uh, they understood this they 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 had um, a deep understanding of the plants and, and fauna and everything around them and like you said they specifically um, dealt a lot with trees and there's actually a, there's a specific um, I guess you can call it an astrology where they, they literally had their own their own astrology, which was associated with um, trees. It was like you represented the aspect. My dog is now running around um, chasing her tail. <laughs> um, but no, where you you would depending on your birth dates, um, that depended on what specific tree that you uh, represented and you know they had full-on personality traits associated with you can actually look it up now but full-on personality traits associated with um specific trees and which i find that fascinating because like you know it's all kind of like interconnected and i think like um the concept of fairies the concept of elves the concept of like these nature spirits and deities I think it's something that in modern times we have like sort of forgotten. And we don't have, I think maybe that's why modern tales like uh, Lord of the Rings and even, you know, Dolby from Harry Potter, I think that's why it like those characters sort of like hit home with us so hard because it's ingrained in us. And, um, the lack of association that we have with like nature spirits or nature deities, or even the the symbology that goes along with them, those characters sort of fill that hole for us, you know? And I think most people, uh, not all, but most people do care about the environment. You know, we do care about what happens to the world around us.
2: Yeah. Yeah, We as humans have, almost completely forgotten how to work with nature. I come from an area where there's a lot of farming going on. Plus we have a lot of natural, natural scapes like swamps and marshlands and salt marshes that are constantly, we're hearing about them being under threat from developers and outside forces. So I grew up with a lot of this focusing on the environment thing and all through elementary school, it was like teaching us how to preserve, be kind to not destroy the area around you. And I've also worked with our state parks as a reservation specialist. So I would be going out to these parks and seeing what they do. And a lot of time, it's just like, we really want to focus on keeping these areas looking as nice as possible and maintaining them as well as we can. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that did involve saying, people, you can't come in right now. Yes. Let it heal.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, that, you know, <laughs> I think that that's, the, having the healthy respect for nature itself is, is part of like life itself. And this sort of like comes from my own like spiritualism or whatever you want to call it, my own belief system. You know I grew up with um, a great-grandmother who you know believed in herbs and a grandmother who you know taught me about herbs and like you know things like you know lavender for a cut or um, melaleuca which is tree oil for bacterial and fungus infections and you know little tiny things like that We're, and so like I kind of have this healthy respect you know that okay well we have to treat it's it's all like interconnected we have to treat this well so that you know and have a sort of like healthy respect for mother nature so that it continues to produce these healing things and that we don't lose any of that and and from a scientific standpoint you know we have to continue taking care or else global warming you know that's the result holes in our ozone and things
1: like that. I mean, it's so. Well, um, and to piggyback off of what you were saying about the scientific thing with the trees, um, in Japan, they do something called tree bathing. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I haven't. It's just, um, you walk, you don't like, it's it's not like speed walking, it's just going to a park and walking through the trees. Um, the, the trees give off some sort of a i don't know if it's a hormone or i can't remember exactly right now but an enzyme or something where it actually calms people and um i i I was reading something about children with adhd Mm. take them through a park you can't go walking just down the street in the city it has to be where there are trees it calms them down for about a if if you take them for a walk for like a half hour so like you were saying everything's interconnected And I think that's part of the reason why there's so much depression and anxiety and frustration and road rage in our society because we have totally cut ourselves off from nature. That's very true. There's, I mean, having lived in
0: the South where you're sort of like surrounded by nature and then moving up to Jersey where it's, uh, it's still here, but it's like, you know, human
2: part At between. those green spaces
0: yeah yeah like I mean as a kid you know going outside and just literally there's something called grounding and and, and you know a lot of people are going to say that's very woo-woo Jess but that's okay <laughs> um but it's where you go outside and you have you know in bare feet and you are literally like grounding yourself through the earth and I do believe that we have this um you know, we know that, that the Earth has some magnetic energy, the own, own magnetic pole and that we ourselves have energy because we have, you know, we're made up of atoms and molecules and all of that has energy. And there's just something about, take all the woo-woo out of it, there's something about going outside and putting your feet in the grass that just instantly has that calming effect, for me personally. And I mean, the same can be said of like going going to the beach and putting your toes in the sand. You know, that that spark of connection with nature itself, it's very strong, it's powerful stuff, especially for your mental health. And you know, going off of what you were saying, Elwyn, I, I have a son that has Asperger's. <clears throat> and um, hiking is uh, one of one of his things. He doesn't always like it at first, but after about 20, 20 minutes in. It literally is a marked change in, in him, like you can almost literally see the moment that his, his, he calms and just sort of mellows out. So yeah, it really does work that so, and, and I'm sure there is a scientific aspect to it. I'm sure that, you know, nature and trees and whatever give off some sort of pheromone or something that that has that effect
1: and trees do communicate with each other, mm-hmm. they have a really complicated network of how they 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 care for each other, like even after uh if a tree is cut down you'll still sometimes find like the neighboring trees like uh still trying to sustain it you know you find like
0: it's very interesting that you said that there is a uh Okay, I'm going to call them woods, but Laura you, for you, they're not woods. <laughs> uh, but we, very close to our apartment complex, we have a uh, wooded path. There you go. That um, sort of, it's a walking trail people go on. Um, and it's very green. But in it, there are a lot of felled trees. And um, almost every single one of them have like, signs of life mirrored so you can actually see in one case a tree fell and another tree sort of like grew up and around it so Yeah, that's very interesting that you said that because it just made me think of um, all those different like uh, trees and pieces of trees that have fallen in that that little area, but um, I do want to take a moment and Lorelai you might know some um, Some really good groups that people can go to. I I do think it's super important for us. And I know that there's a lot going on in the world right now. There's a lot of things that need to be changed. um, With certain laws and things, especially uh, surrounding people of color and things like that. So um, I'm not trying to take away any of that by saying that, you know, we do need to be more conscious about our environmental activism and what we're doing. Um, But I know that there are several different groups people can go to and just learn about what they can do. Um, a lot of different charities. There is uh, the Union of Consorted Scientists, which is basically their um, environmental scientists and they try to solve like the world's problems um, related to the environment. Um, there's the Natural Resources Defense Council, or the NRDC.
2: There's the Environmental Working Group. I uh, think merely and usually some of the best places you can start searching for conservation programs is almost always your DNR department.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And if not them, any, this is usually like not something who really like to pursue, but hunting groups. And I don't mean like trophy hunting or sports hunting, people that like live off the land and actually know like how to use every part of the animal they hunt and you treat it respectfully treat the environment respectfully people that are not trippy hunting but they're rather like traditional hunting they'll usually be bow hunters
0: Mm, yeah well i've also found even groups that you can get your kids involved in like 4-h i mean groups like that have like you know inherent environmental healthy programs you know yeah because they understand any
2: Anybody that lives off the land is usually very involved in keeping the land able to live off of. They want to keep it up to date. They want to keep it healthy, and they want to make sure that it's not being overused or absolutely injured or hurt in any way, mm-hmm. be, it, be it by a disease or by human.
0: Absolutely. And there's other little things that you can do. Like say, okay, well, activism's not really my thing. Okay. Well, I don't have a whole lot of time for activism, but I do do other things. I, I order my vegetables from a place called Misfits Market. I'm sure there's other types of them out there, but it's basically where it helps reduce food waste in States. You can order, um, I think I get like 20 pounds of vegetables for $30. But it's all stuff that would normally be thrown away. So instead of going to a grocery store to buy my veggies, I'm buying from local farmers. And, you know, that's that's helping them. It's also helping the environment by reducing food waste. Um, I'm sure there's others.
2: Yep. I have heard of one called ugly foods where it's any kind of food that would normally be thrown out because of it. it's not, not attractive enough qualities for the store Markets, mm-hmm. yeah, that's like it. Yep, it gets shipped out in boxes. There's also like small stuff for your your yard. If you have a yard or like a window box in an apartment, planting wildflowers, local ones preferably if you can find them. And usually they'll sell seed packets at stores somewhere.
0: And seed packets are like three dollars. They're really
2: cheap. They're <laughs> they're super cheap depending yeah. on which brand you get. But yeah, that is a great way to attract local insect populations that will help keep things moving, keep pollinating and moving along. Yeah, um,
1: I, I, I sent away last year for um, seeds for monarch butterflies because they need healthy plants to eat that haven't been filled with insecticides because the monarch butterfly is, of course, in trouble. Yeah, see stuff like, also, go ahead, I'm sorry. I also sent away to someone else uh, for uh, Plants to grow for honeybees because again, they need plants to eat or you know to to pollinate uh, that aren't full of insecticides.
0: Yep, and even like growing your own um, <clears throat> little vegetables and, and things like that. I mean, I mean, I live in Jersey now, and I am cultivating my very first like sort of terrace garden. Okay, we're not gonna call it a terrace. It is a what's it called? Help me out here. (laughs) I call it a terrace. It's not a terrace. It is like you know. I have like literally five feet of a back porch thing. (laughs)
2: Like a little balcony garden. Yeah, thank you. A balcony garden. So, um, yep. My mom has decided to do our our garden this year and we had everything in the ground by good friday because that's when my great-grandmother did it and she always had huge amounts of vegetables Mm -hmm. like she would send us home with walmart bags bursting with cucumbers and squash and tomatoes so we are on that track hopefully some stuff will start blooming soon and i've got some herbs that i'm very proud of because they're my small little plants and they're doing just fine
0: I had moved my herbs inside, and I was because I was so upset because because I'm not used to Jersey weather yet, so like everything was dying, and I was like, no. <laughs> so I moved them inside, try and save them. We'll see how they do, but yeah. So like even like little stuff like that, and and let me tell you from experience, if you grow your own herbs, a fresh herb, and and you can you can buy your herbs, you can or like buy the seeds for herbs, you can grow them. You can dry them out yourselves and create the same spices that you go to the supermarket to buy that probably has been made with, like, plants filled with insecticides and pesticides and whatever else. Anyways, you can make your own, like, spices, like, uh, even even with, like, vegetables. So, um... Yep.
2: Yeah. Anything that you think is so difficult to do that you could never yourself imagine doing it, especially regarding gardens or spices, it's usually so easy you almost wouldn't believe it
0: yeah and spice or herbs are usually really easy to grow i mean
2: and a and lot some of are them are low
0: maintenance a lot of them are low maintenance and things like lavender and rosemary i uh i don't do spiders i don't do like uh mosquitoes and things and those specific plants they actually deter spiders so like Having uh, lavender and rosemary, like in the house or or in the house and like outside the house or around the house, that will actually keep your spider population down. So, and it's it's you're adding to the environment. Anytime you grow something yourself that you're not like getting from this one of these big huge corporate companies that basically they they are not taking care of the land. Anytime you do something like that, you are you are adding value to the earth itself. So. Yeah, that's my little
2: passionate tie. <laughs> yep. Every every time I'm in a store, I love seeing locally grown signs or going to a farmer's market because I like <clears throat> smaller farms because that's kind of the environment I grew up in most of my life. Small farms with cows or vegetable gardens, as opposed to factory farming, where they will literally just drain the soil they and then try the and artificially replenish it. Mm-hmm. They kill. But the so you get so much. You get so much better quality produce. With local small family farming as opposed to factory farming.
1: And yeah, and it's just so different because, like, I live in Philly, so I've mostly grown up, you know. Well, I I'm mean, I'm, I'm a lot older now, but uh, <laughs> I grew up, you know, on vegetables from the grocery store or out of a can. And then, uh, but like, even if you just go to a farmer's market and you buy produce there, it's just it's, the taste is so much better like the flavors are so much yeah stronger.
0: it's just it's a, i mean it is incredible the difference and yeah. depending on where you go like i one of my favorite things to do when i lived near uh, when i lived in south carolina I was to drive down to edisto beach and on the way they have this like amazing vegetable stand buying tomatoes and vegetables from that specific stand because of the where it was and the location of the soil and things like that the, the incredible flavor of the taste, it was just like amazing. So like even like if you go on trips, look out for little vegetable stands because a lot of the time these are local farmers putting up these little stands and um just start experimenting because you can find like in like just incredible different flavors. And that's just I will take it on that personally because I'm very passionate about that. <laughs> But yeah, even going to local farmers markets and buying there. I mean, um, I know in South Carolina, local farmers markets, they sell everything from uh, vegetables that are in season, like peppers. And uh, I think right now it's like, what is it right now, Lily? It's, it's, you know, squash and um, things like that are in season. But they also usually have milk and usually have eggs and you know things like that
1: well and, and the the amish are good for uh for getting a different uh healthier milk i don't know if you guys ever ever shop at amish markets we had mennonites um mennonite market
0: near where my father lived so i know what you're talking about um i know there's probably a, a big Amish amish community near me somewhere i just don't know where <laughs>
2: Yes, I went up to Amish Country in Philadelphia—not Philadelphia, Philadelphia Pennsylvania—a long time ago. I think when I was in fifth grade, mm. and it was on a just a driving tour with my grandmother. So you were you were you in Lancaster? I have honestly, I do not remember. It was so long ago. I was mostly focusing on the fact that we would be going to the Hershey's chocolate factory after we left Amish Country. <laughs> I was more excited for that portion. Now that I'm older, I kind of wish I could go back and just kind of see what the markets looked like because i remember being so fascinated by some of the crafts there mm-hmm. but yes i did grow up with a lot of this anything you can make and do yourself do it my mom jokes that my grandmother would milk cows and when she skimmed it it was skimmed she would get all of the fat out of there <laughs> which i've never had to do myself but i think it would be an interesting process to try
0: i've i've never wanted to milk a cow but i will go and buy buy the milk from the farmer's market
1: (laughs) i don't think i could handle that i would just be too scared you know what else is really sad i guess because i grew up in the city like uh the first it was within the last couple years that i actually picked an apple off a tree and ate it and i was like so excited, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am. But, you know, I've been around for a little while, and I'm thinking this is like so sad. This is how most people live their life. They don't even get to go outside and pick an apple off a tree and eat it. Well, like, the the really cool thing about like modern times is there has been like this
0: really big push for urban uh, farming and urban. Yeah, um, yeah, we have some of those in Philly. Yeah. So it's it's going to be, I think in the coming years, especially, I hope it's going to be less and less common for people. I hope it's my dream that people will stop going to supermarkets. <laughs> like, I know it's a big dream, but that's my dream. I mean, and I know sometimes you have to go to the supermarket, like I know, but if I could completely cut out the supermarket for my life and I can't yet, then I totally would hundred percent, but yeah. Because uh, I think you know the the all these like city farming projects and things like that, I think that's amazing, and I hope it continues
1: yeah there's one that i that, that we go to a lot um in fishtown in philly mm. it's, it's a section of Philly and they have a, a like a sustainable garden yeah, it's nice that's I have a
2: friend who I went to school with in Philadelphia. she lived around 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 fishtown at the time. I wish I had gotten a chance to explore more when I was there for school. But I would, the mostly, the only real green space I ever went to was Rittenhouse Square. And that was because it was on the way to the library. I haven't
0: been into any any of the the urban farming center things um, in New York, which I'm only like 30 minutes out from New York. So I'm really close um, in New York or really any in Jersey because we've been in lockdown. (laughs) Um, but I did find a butcher so that I'm happy about, um, but yeah, so we've kind of like gone on and on. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Guys. But, um, is there anything else you want to say about like the environment or elves or how it's all related or anything before we sign off? No,
2: mm-hmm. not that I can think of right now. Okay. Awesome.
0: Um, thank you guys so much for being a part of this episode. Um, It'll be yeah. It'll be next next week. Episode eight will come out next week. Tomorrow will be the mini sode and the next Wednesday will be this episode. So but um, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. If you guys want to say bye to everybody. Bye everyone. We'll sign off. Bye guys. Thank you for listening to Loreverse. Music for Loreverse is brought to you from Purple Planet Music. You can find them online at www.purple-planet.com And don't forget to check our website out, www.lovers.com.